You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to Yahweh. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to Yahweh. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread, and from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to Yahweh. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings and the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of Yahweh's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of Yahweh's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the fat of an animal that dies of itself, and the fat of one that is torn by beasts, may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to Yahweh 
shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to Yahweh shall bring his offering to Yahweh from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring Yahweh's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before Yahweh. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron, the priest, and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from Yahweh's food offerings, from the day they were presented to serve as priests of Yahweh. Yahweh commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which Yahweh commanded Moses on Mount Sinai, on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to Yahweh in the wilderness of Sinai. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 597 of this podcast. Today is April 14th, 2023, also a Friday. That was Leviticus 7 at the top of this episode of reading from Leviticus. We're going through chapter at a time. Next up will be, if you can guess, Leviticus 8, where we'll be talking about the consecration of Aaron and his sons. You won't want to miss that because it is important, right? It might seem like it's really obscure, some of this stuff, because, hey, why do I need to know? But the reason is because God's the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And insofar as his purposes overall haven't changed, they are unchangeable. The character of his purposes is unchangeable. We should understand something about how he has interacted with his people in times past, what that says about his goodness, his righteousness, his wisdom, and what we should be understanding of the will of God right now. But that said, let's talk about Leviticus 7 specifically. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That includes Leviticus 7, and that includes laws with regards to guilt offerings, for instance, peace offerings, for instance, that includes not touching unclean things. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. So that is to say that if there's something that's contaminated, a bit of meat, it's in the law, not just from a health standpoint. I don't think a lot of people will explain prohibitions on eating pork, for instance, and they'll say, well, uh, you know, God knew that you know, pork can be a tricky thing. You can get sick from eating pork if it's not 
prepared properly. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's more to it than that. I think there's a symbolism that's inherent to these things. Similar to, not exactly the same as, but similar to when we see that the wicked flee, but nobody's pursuing them. The righteous are bold as a lion. Could you just plug any animal into that and it be all the same? No, because there's a characteristic. There's a certain attribute and personality type that we associate with lions. Better a live dog than a dead lion, it says in another place, which is to say that be careful. Be careful how bold you are because it could be better for you to be humble sometimes than for you to be especially prideful and and hard-headed and and have it go badly for you, right? So you've got to know how to pick your battles, in other words. We also see in the New Testament Jesus saying to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Why is that? Could you have just plugged any animal into those two spots and it'd be all the same? Could you have swapped their places and have it be all the same? Of course not. Of course you couldn't. How would it sound if you said, be wise as doves and harmless as snakes, (laughs) right? That's not what we're called to. You know, we don't think of doves as being especially clever creatures. Likewise, snakes are not harmless as a general rule, or you shouldn't assume that they are. You should always assume that a gun is loaded, and you should always assume that a snake is venomous unless you're sure, based on the breed and the type, that it's not. You should always assume that a snake could have venom unless you know for sure that it's a breed or a species that won't. But Here we've got various animals that are being offered for various kinds of offerings. If this is a peace offering, if this is a guilt offering, if this is a burnt offering, if this is a wave offering, uh, you know, the rules are different, the circumstances are different, and you're supposed to keep up with it all. If you are an Israelite, if you are a Levite in particular, at this juncture, if you're a contemporary, if you are part of Israel, when Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai and tells the people, this is what the Lord has spoken, you've got to keep track of all this. And it's a lot, and it's a little bit complicated. But then how much of our looking at this as complicated has to do with us just figuring this is not relevant to my circumstance, or thinking, given the complications of life in the year 2023, in the United States of America, how complicated our legal system is, this would be added to it, but we're not thinking this would be instead of the current legal system that we have. If we were Israelites, we wouldn't have all of the assumptions carried backwards in time. And this is why it's important to not engage in presentism, where you just assume that everything has always been like it is right now, or should have always been like it is right now. It's a very presumptuous and not at all to be taken for granted or assumed kind of place to start. Things have not always been as they are right now in the way that our laws are drafted, debated, voted on, enacted, enforced, interpreted. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's messy. It is messy and it is complicated. And actually, this is a much simpler way of figuring out what to do and what not to do 
to just have one man go up on the mountain, talk with God and come down with, here's what God said to do and to not do. And when there is sin, notice the, the default assumption is not that the people are never going to sin and it's not to be reactive, like we'll figure it out, right? We'll, We'll build the car as we're driving down the road in it. That's not what it is. It's on the front end. When there is sin and an offering needs to be made in this circumstance, in this circumstance, in this circumstance, here's how to do it. Here's how I want you to do this. That's what God is saying. Here's how I want you to do this. And insofar as many of us approach our relationship with God in exactly the opposite sort of a way, where we're telling God, here's what I want you to do for me, it catches a lot of us off guard and we really need to rethink the dynamics of our relationship with God when we come to the Old Testament. And the New Testament as well, but the Old Testament helps to set up our understanding of the New Testament. That's the reason why we have both and, even as Christians. Even though we're not under law, we still are meditating on God's law because it speaks to God's character. And his character is not that he's just sitting up in heaven waiting for us to tell him what to do because he doesn't know. Or because all he cares about is what we want. No, no. God wants us to care about what he wants. And yes, he will, like a good father, give to his children good gifts. But he knows better what those good gifts are than we do. And that's the point, right? That's the point. That's why this is supposed to transform us. We're not supposed to come to the text and just have our way with what it says and what that means and what it translates into. God's not fooled by that. That might work on people where we play fast and loose with language, we redefine terms, we quibble endlessly about the meaning of words, but that's not how God works. That's not how he operates. He sees the inner man of our heart. He knows our thoughts and our intentions. He knows more than just what we do externally and whether that's good or bad. He knows more than just what we say and whether that's true or false. He also knows what's going on internally that drives what we're doing and saying. And what we're not doing and saying, more to the point, we have to speculate with regards to one another and even our own selves. We don't always know why we do the things that we do, why we say the things that we say. A quick proof of this is when two people get into something of a conflict, they get sideways with each other. Sometimes what you'll have is one person saying, why did you do this thing? Right? You did this thing which offended me or it sinned against me or it really upset me. Why did you do it? Why did you say that? And pay attention. How often is the response, I don't know, right? I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I said that. That was a dumb thing. I don't know. I don't know why. But God does. And that's the point. God does know the how and the why these things come to be. And that's why he's predictive. We think, for instance, in this day, we devise these computer programs and we could get artificial intelligence to trend things and tell us based on the current trajectory of these variables, if we adjust this one, then it'll have this effect in proportion, either inverse or direct proportion to what we're trying to control or manipulate. And therefore we automate things and we use predictive analytics, predictive AI to figure out how to get the most yield, how to decrease downtime, how to repair things before they have fully broken out before they have a catastrophic catastrophic failure. You know, we figure out those kinds of things. And therefore, <laughs> if you'll reason with me for a moment here, 
Therefore, it shouldn't be beyond the pale to imagine that God, who knows all, is seeing what we're doing and knows what the effects are going to be. Now, some philosophically minded, theologically deep people will raise their hand here and they'll say, well, wait a second. Do you believe God exists within time and he's learning as we are? No, no, just hold on a second. Even if, here's my point, even if you can't wrap your mind around the idea of God existing outside of time, okay, which who can really? I mean, the people who claim to, I have my doubts. I have my doubts that they really, really, truly understand what they're saying. I think they're just saying a thing because it should be true, but who understands that? Who has known the mind of the Lord in that way? It's so other. It's other what we are constrained by because we operate within time and space. But set that aside for a second. Even if it were just that God is traveling through time with us, but he knows all. In fact, he created this all. He set the laws in place by which the physical universe, the moral universe operates. Therefore, even if it was just a set it and forget it, and he's a casual observer, he knows exactly how the dominoes are going to fall and to what end. But there's more to it than that because he engages. He's not the God of the deists. He's an active agent in his own creation with regards to his own creation, with regards to us, and he demonstrates his power throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to show us he is still sovereign, Lord of all creation. He is the creator, and he's the Lord of creation. He, on occasion, when his creatures forget, makes a demonstration so that we will remember. And then he tells us in his word that that's what it's about. That's what he's doing. He is doing this for his glory, and he's doing this for our good. And we do well to think on it. We do well to remember it and to take seriously what a great blessing it is to have peace with God in Christ. Now that said, let's talk a bit about peace and pieces. So there's some legislation that is up for consideration, which we should know about. As a resident of the state of Colorado since September of 2019, I am interested in Colorado specifically, but you should know that as Colorado goes, so also a lot of Western states can go and you can have a ripple effect from sensibilities that originate here in the state of Colorado. You can see a transformative effect. You can see a domino effect in other states in the West, in Wyoming, for instance, in Utah, in Montana, in the Dakotas. That's Part of what the left has in mind when they push certain things in Colorado is they're hoping to exercise influence over the whole of the Rocky Mountains. But also, besides that, as Colorado goes, even red states in more of the Midwest, even those red states in the South can be influenced and even nationwide. Things that are allowed to have a precedent here in the state of Colorado because the Dems (laughs) run the board, things that are allowed to have precedent here can have ripple effects across the country. And I care about this country. This is the country that I was born into. This is the country I'm a citizen of. The United States of America is the only country I have citizenship in, in a human sense, in a purely human sense. Yes, I understand fellow Christians 
our citizenship is in heaven. I get that. But Paul, for instance, the apostle in the New Testament, he references his Roman citizenship. So it's not just, right? It's not an either or. It's not like you are either a citizen of heaven or you are also a citizen of a earthly kingdom, a kingdom of men. More to the point, too, God uses the nations of the earth. They might conspire against him to try and figure out how they can break his bonds asunder, how they can liberate themselves from his laws, his rules, his reigning over them. But God uses the nations to accomplish his purposes, to get glory for himself and to turn all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we come to this question of the United States of America, one state in particular, the state of Colorado, and draft legislation introduced for prohibiting, as they <laughs> as they call it, certain firearms used in public mass shootings. I'm going to read through a little bit of this, just a little bit, not the whole thing, but I'll link to the larger document. Thank you to my friend Joe for sharing the link with me. Bill summary, and I quote, Note, this summary applies to this bill as introduced and does not reflect any amendments that may be subsequently adopted. If this bill passes third reading in the House of Introduction, a bill summary that applies to the re-engrossed version of this bill will be available at httpleg.colorado.gov. The bill defines the term, quote, assault weapon, end quote, and prohibits a person from manufacturing, importing, purchasing, selling, offering to sell, or transferring ownership of an assault weapon. The bill further prohibits a person from possessing a rapid-fire trigger activator. A violation is a Class II misdemeanor. This prohibition does not apply to, and here's a bullet point list, a member of the United States Armed Forces, a peace officer, or other government officer or agent to the extent that such person is otherwise authorized to acquire or possess an assault weapon and does so while acting within the scope of the person's duties. Now, let me just stop right there, okay? Can I stop right there? Tell me this. We're not even out of the first bullet point of this list of people this legislation would not apply to. U.S. Armed Forces peace officer, all right? Peace officer or other government officer or agent to the extent that such a person is otherwise authorized to acquire or possess an assault weapon and does so while acting within the scope of the person's duties. Do we call them assault weapons? Here's my question. Do we call them assault weapons when law enforcement carries them, when government agents carry them? Do we call them assault weapons or do we just call them firearms? Yes or no? Do we call them assault weapons when it's an agent of the government carrying them? And to give you a sense of the ridiculous here, go back in time a couple thousand years when it was all bladed weapons, swords, daggers, axes, spears, bows and arrows, that kind of stuff. Did we call a sword an assault sword or did we just call it a sword? A sword is a sword. Did you call a spear an assault spear or did you just say it's a spear? You know, my name is Garrett Ashley Mullet. Garrett is a form of Gerald. Gerald is a name that means power of the spear or spear ruler. It doesn't mean 
power of the assault spear, right? It doesn't mean assault spear ruler, right? It just spear. A spear is a spear. If you tack on the word assault, have you actually enhanced our understanding of the thing? Or is the intent when we tack on the word assault is the intent to actually obstruct a more complete understanding of the thing? And by the thing, I mean the material object, the weapon. It is a weapon, but that's not the same thing as to say that it is an assault weapon because an assault weapon is a weapon that is specifically for assaulting, which is to say an assault is different from a defense. So you can assault somebody, but that is to say you're attacking them. That is to say you're the aggressor. To call these assault weapons is to imply not to directly state because you can't defend it as a direct statement. So you have to imply it. You have to suggest that in a manipulative way. It's to imply that these weapons are only good for aggressors. They're only good for aggression. They're only good for attacking somebody who is innocent, but they're not good for defending somebody who is innocent. Like for instance, yourself or your family or your loved ones or the general public, which is directly contradicted when it's being made clear in the first bullet point that a member of the U.S. Armed Forces or a peace officer or other government, government officer or agent might carry these. Now, let me ask you, are all of the people listed here as agents of the government only carrying these firearms to assault? Is that to suggest that our government only uses these things in an aggressive way or do the rules suddenly change by the nature of whether somebody has authorization from the government or they don't have authorization from the government? Do all of the rules suddenly change based on whether this person is a representative of the state or whether this is a common citizen? Yes or no? That's an important question at the root here with the agenda of the left to ban common use firearms, common use weapons, which people acquire for many purposes arguably the most important of which is self-defense. I don't have all these firearms because shooting is a hobby for me. I don't even own all these firearms because hunting is an interest to me. I haven't been hunting for years, but I'm not going to sell all my guns. I own these firearms because I want to be able to defend my family, period. If some violent criminal tries to break into my home, I want to be able to defend my family from being harmed. If some vicious dog is on the street and comes after one of my kids or a neighbor kid or one of my neighbors who are not kids, who are adults, I want to be able to protect somebody who's being attacked by a vicious dog. If some foreign power invades our country, which is possible, you shouldn't rule it out with the prospect of World War III around the corner. Look at what's happening in Ukraine. Yes, I know we have a much more impressive military, but we should not arrogantly suppose we couldn't lose a war given how things went in Afghanistan. We had a very impressive military and we didn't hold on to our winnings there. For that matter, how did Vietnam go? For that matter, we only kept half of Korea free from communist rule. The other half is still held by the communists to this day. So to my way of thinking, America has been invaded before. It could be invaded again. And if it were invaded again, I would want to be able to defend my family from 
a foreign military. I would want to be able to defend my friends from a foreign military. And our government knows that that is important and valid. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sending so much military hardware, so much weaponry and ammunition to the Ukrainians. But again, just this first bullet point. My question is, why are we calling these assault weapons? Why are they not just weapons? Now, you could say weapons can be modified to enhance their effectiveness, their efficiency, their lethality. And I say, but that's a good thing if you've acquired this weapon for defense of innocent people from predators. I want the most lethal weapon I can possibly get, the most efficient lethal weapon I can get when it comes to defending innocent people. And so does our military and so does law enforcement for the exact same reasons. But it's being implied strongly here that the only people who have a valid reason to want to protect the innocent are the people who work for the government when they have the permission of the government. And oh, ho, ho, it just so happens that the people who want to control your government are of the left. And they don't want you to have weapons, I think, because they have in mind taking your property and redistributing it. They have in mind taking your liberties. And if you raise a fuss about that, putting you away. And they don't want you to be able to protect yourself if they decide to become objectively tyrannical, which sometimes governments do. Sometimes governments turn tyrannical. Now, consider with me, if you will, that there was a civil war in this country back in the 1860s. I have a poster that hangs on my wall, Campaigns of the Civil War. It's a commemorative map, centennial edition, which means that it was published in 1961. But it's a reminder to me that there was a civil war in this country. And that's the other reason why I want to have the most lethal weaponry I can have. Because I've read about the Civil War. I've read several books on the American Civil War. I've had ancestors that participated in the American Civil War. If we had another one in this country, I would want to have the most capable weapon systems I possibly could get my hands on to be able to fight and win if I was forced to it. And I don't like the idea of people I regard as political opponents and people who regard me as an enemy in my own country, I don't like the idea of them passing legislation designed to erode my ability to protect myself, my family, my friends, particularly when we've seen violent rioting and looting from leftist activists in recent years. We've seen American fires lit by the radical left. We've seen American cities burning and in chaos because of the radical left. I want to be able to protect my family and my property and my person and other innocent people as well from any such future campaigns by the radical left in this country. And that is to say that the weapons I have are, first and foremost, defense weapons. So you put a ban on assault weapons, so-called. All right. How about defense weapons? Are you going to ban defense weapons too? Ooh, when you start calling them defense weapons, then all of a sudden the script has to flip because it's like, why would you ban defense weapons? Why would you want innocent people, 
you just so happen to hate <laughs> because they disagree with you politically and theologically and on pretty much every social issue, why would you want them to not have defense weapons? It would seem as though what you're really getting at is you want them to be defenseless. And what's downstream of them being defenseless is that you actually want to assault them. But you're calling what they have assault weapons is playing games with language. Now, what's driving this? Supposedly, what's driving this is developments like what happened a few weeks ago in Nashville, Tennessee. A Christian school in Nashville was shot up by a transgendered person, a biological woman who identified as a man and regarded Christians, even Christian children, as her enemies. What stopped that transgendered person from killing more children and more teachers and more school administrators? You and I both know what stopped her was good guys with guns coming and using those guns to neutralize her as a threat. We know that. There's no denying it. There's no getting around it. We know that. So then what the left does with this whole story is they say it was the gun's fault. It's the fault of Republicans. It's the fault of conservatives. It's the fault of Christians in America that this happened. One, because you guys tell the transgendered people and the homosexuals to repent of their perversion and their sexual immorality. But for two, because you insist on these firearms being legal and something people can purchase and own. And it's disingenuous because our constitution has it as the second amendment. Not the first, I grant, but immediately following the right to free speech being a protected right, a God-given inalienable right, the right to speak freely and worship God according to the dictates of your conscience. Right after that is the right to keep and bear arms because it's necessary for a free people, which is to say that the political party that doesn't believe you should have a right to own a firearm, that political party does not actually want you to be a free people anymore, not in the way you historically have been, not in the way that we historically we're supposed to be a free people. They don't want that. They believe that's dangerous in part because they're jealous of what doesn't belong to them. And they fueled by their envy of people who own things that they don't own and have power that they don't have and have authority that they don't have. They want to be able to take from those who have more so that they can redistribute to themselves and their friends. When they take. They don't want to get shot. It's as simple as that. When they loot, when they riot, when they assault through other means, they don't want to get shot. There was the whole business with Black Lives Matter riots again in Wisconsin. Remember the young guy who the media wanted to demonize? He's a bad kid. What was he doing there? White supremacist, literally a Nazi just because he was there with a backwards cap and an AR-15, and he was white, and he was not supportive of the Black Lives Matter protests. He gets violently attacked and defends himself with the AR-15, effectively. And the left wanted to destroy him. 
The left wants to do that to all of us. And it's precisely why it can't be allowed that they would write it into the laws that we're not allowed to own these weapons. But if you scroll down in this draft legislation, they talk about various additions to a firearm or various features of a firearm, which allow you to know what is an assault weapon. How can you know? How can you know what an assault weapon is? Page four of this document, line one. Assault weapons are uniquely lethal due to tactical features that are designed for the battlefield in order to injure or kill large numbers of people quickly and efficiently. These tactical features differentiate assault weapons from other firearms. These features include detachable magazines, barrel shrouds, pistol grips, forward grips, and telescoping stocks, which allow a shooter to either conceal the weapon or make it easier to fire a high volume of ammunition in a short period of time while maintaining accuracy. The design, features, and purpose of an assault weapon make it the firearm of choice for mass shooters. The typical assault weapon, bullet, leaves the barrel of the gun three times faster than a typical handgun bullet and is designed to fragment and tumble. The high velocity of the typical assault weapon bullet damages and destroys tissue as it travels through the body, causing organs to become liquefied and causing catastrophic internal bleeding. Now, let's just stop right there. We'll stop on line 17. For one thing, there is nothing fundamentally different about the firearms that they want to ban in terms of the intended effect if you use these firearms to defend an innocent person. There's nothing fundamentally different at root as far as what the effect is going to be on the human body that you are shooting. Dead is dead. You going into graphic detail about What's happening in the case of the weapons that you want to ban doesn't change the fundamental nature of what having a weapon at all for self-defense is going to do to the human body of somebody who's being an aggressor, somebody who's violently assaulting you. If somebody, let's say, for instance, breaks into my house in the middle of the night holding a large knife and I take out a single shot 45 caliber handgun. Let's just say no high capacity, anything like that. I just load it once and I shoot them. Is the left happy? If I shoot them and I'm just absolutely dead on target, is the left happy? Is that what they're looking for us all to be in the situation of? Now, what if I miss? I had one shot. I miss because my adrenaline is pumping. I'm all kinds of tired, disoriented, stressed out, confused. I'm breathing heavily. This is an extraordinarily stressful situation. Arguably the most stressful situation you will ever face in your entire life. Life or death. Your life or death. This guy's life or death. Your family's life or death situation. You shoot and you miss. And now what? Is the left happy? Now let's suppose I get two shots or three or four or five or six. Or how many before the left says that's a high capacity. That's too high. Who says? That's arbitrary. Since when do these people get to arbitrarily decide how many rounds I can have in my firearm? And let's just take this a step farther. Let's suppose in a hypothetical scenario, it's not one person that breaks into my house. I've seen surveillance 
footage, by the way, of multiple criminals breaking into somebody's apartment, for instance. They knock on the door. The woman of the house goes to answer. And next thing you know, there's three or four grown men barging into the house, assaulting her and anybody else present, taking whatever property they can grab and run out the door with. If they're armed and there's four of them, now how's that going to work if I have one shot? How's that going to work if I have two or three shots or four shots? I'm scrambling. I'm outnumbered all of a sudden. I get four shots. I get four tries. If I miss one of them, well, too bad for me. Do you think they're going to be breaking into my house unarmed with nothing but the best of intentions? Actually, as a matter of fact, if you pay attention to what the left actually is doing, like not hypothetically, but actually doing in major cities across the US, they're putting district attorneys in place who basically say if someone commits a crime due to being poor, then they should have their sentence commuted or they shouldn't have charges pressed against them. So then as long as these four guys who break into my house are doing the stealing because they're poor, as long as that's the argument that can be made, as long as they're doing it because they're ethnicity is regarded as minority, and this is advancing social justice, well then, I'm actually the bad guy. Even though it's my house that they're breaking into, I'm the bad guy. And yes, I am assaulting them. If they're innocent by virtue of their socioeconomic status, their racial composition, their ethnos, skin color, If they're innocent, then that makes me the aggressor, actually. And then in that case, these are assault weapons that I would own and use to defend my family and my property and my person. But to go into this much detail and to say that the typical assault weapon bullet is designed to fragment and tumble through the body, destroying tissue as it travels through the body. What bullet is not designed to destroy tissue as it travels through the body? That's how you are neutralizing this person. You are killing them. That's You could say that if you wanted to ban swords next, right? We'll, we'll say these are assault swords. They're not swords, they're assault swords. And only law enforcement and military officers are allowed to own assault swords. And then they go into detail about all the different types of wounds that can be inflicted by a sword, depending on which part of the body is being stabbed or cut or slashed or bludgeoned or whatever, see, nobody should own these. These shouldn't be something that people can lawfully purchase and own and keep. And mm -mm. So this is highly manipulative. In other words, this is a highly manipulative and totally irrelevant inclusion of excessive detail that actually doesn't help you to understand better so-called assault weapons, which are really just a weapons. (laughs) They're really just weapons. (laughs) Also, too, I want to draw this out. Draw this to your attention. Line five, talking about the features which differentiate assault weapons from other firearms, supposedly. The features include detachable magazines. So what, right? Let's just take that piece by itself. Does the left really want us all to believe that any firearm that includes detachable magazines is an assault weapon? True or false? Is that really what we're supposed to believe here? If that's the case, then literally any semi-automatic handgun is going to be regarded as a so-called assault weapon. 
If all it has to have is a detachable magazine, well, there you go. There you go. Also, by the way, too, there are plenty of hunting rifles that have detachable magazines. Now, there might be limitations on how many rounds a detachable magazine can have for you to use it for hunting. You can't have 100 rounds in there and just take out a whole herd of elk, for instance. But, but it's absurd to say that a detachable magazine is a feature unique to so-called assault weapons. Also, a barrel shroud. What is this? Do you know what a barrel shroud is, for instance? Do you know what they're actually describing there? Let me explain. The barrel shroud is the handguard, essentially, that goes around the barrel of, let's say, for instance, a AR-15. So the actual barrel is normal, but you put this shroud over it and around it, and that allows you to actually hold a forward position on the rifle without burning your hand as you're firing. Now, how does a barrel shroud make it an assault weapon, though? How, how does being able to hold the firearm make it an assault weapon? Explain that to me. Also, pistol grips are mentioned here. Okay, what is it about a pistol grip? So is it the fact that it's a pistol or is it the fact that you can grip it? If it's the fact that it's a pistol, then presumably you want to ban all pistols of every kind, semi-automatic and otherwise. So every pistol is now an assault weapon. Is that what I'm understanding? Or is it the grip part, right? If you're able to grip the weapon, that therefore makes it an assault weapon. But that is to say, if you're able to hold it, but that is to say, if you're able to have control of it and use it, which is to say that the real problem here is you keeping and bearing firearms. It really is. That's what that means. Uh, They also have a problem with forward grips. If they were backward grips, would you be more okay with that? What is it about it being a forward grip? Is it, again, just the fact that it's a grip of any kind that we object to that? If so, I reiterate that the real problem here is not that this firearm is so deadly, and it's not that the firearm is the problem. The problem is you and you having a grip on it, you controlling it, you being able to keep and bear it. Their real problem here is with the Second Amendment. Now, they mention telescoping stocks. What is a telescoping stock? Well, that's basically the part of a rifle that you would shoulder. So you put that against your shoulder. That's what stabilizes the rifle or the shotgun, for that matter, because you can put a telescoping stock on a rifle or shotgun or a pistol, for that matter. But that just stabilizes it. That allows you to have more control of it. Now, that's the kind of control that I'm for, by the way. I am for gun control, but my idea of gun control is I have a firm grip on the firearm and I'm able to stabilize it and I have good trigger discipline and I have good marksmanship, as in my rounds go where I place them. That's my idea of gun control, good gun control. Meanwhile, the left's idea of gun control is they control the guns. And therefore, they control you. Now, this line seven says these features, right? So these features I just explained to you. A detachable magazine, by the way, being a separate component that you put the bullets into, which then you insert into the 
lower receiver, which then feeds bullets into the gun as you fire them. The shell casings are ejected. The bullet travels out the end of the barrel towards your target. And the next round is fed up into the lower receiver waiting to be fired. With a semi-automatic, you have to pull the trigger again or it's not going to fire again. An automatic weapon, and this is news to a lot of the gun control people who don't know that much about guns. What they know is that they want to control the guns, but they don't know that much about guns actually in the vast majority of cases. What they know is control. <laughs> that's, that, that's what they know, but they don't know the guns. The detachable magazine is for the purpose of being able to easily, quickly separate the ammunition from the firearm. It makes it unloading the firearm a lot quicker and easier. It makes firing the firearm more efficient. It makes reloading a lot, a lot, a lot faster, which is important, again, if you're using it for defense and you're outnumbered. It's important for you to be able to reload quickly and to have multiple magazines. You should have multiple magazines. If you're trying to defend your castle, you want to be able to reload quickly so that in between rounds, you don't have somebody rushing up on you and overpowering you and neutralizing you. But they say that the features that they list here, detachable magazines, barrel shrouds, pistol grips, forward grips, telescoping stocks, are for the purpose of allowing the shooter to either conceal the weapon or make it easier to fire a high volume of ammunition in a short period of time while maintaining accuracy. Now, which of these are a problem? Tell me that. They think all of these are a problem if you are not coming with the express authorization and authority of the state. But for the purposes of our discussion, for us to understand this, which of these is a problem? Is it a problem for somebody who owns one of these firearms to conceal their firearm? Is that a problem? Uh, I have a concealed carry weapons permit. My wife has a concealed carry uh, concealed carry weapons permit. We do not have a concealed carry weapons permit because we intend to do the public harm. In fact, quite the opposite. We have our CCWs because we want to be able to protect innocent people should some violent animal, some aggressive animal or aggressive person seek to do harm to ourselves, our children, or other innocent people around us. I'm on the security team for our church, for instance. I wear my CCW to church when I'm on the security team. When I'm scheduled to provide security on a Sunday, I wear my CCW. Why do I wear CCW? Why do I wear it concealed? For one, because I'm not trying to make people aware of my firearm in a threatening, menacing way. I don't want to make them uncomfortable. I'm not trying to cause them any unease. It doesn't make me uncomfortable, generally speaking, for somebody else to be carrying a firearm. I just want to know that they have good intentions. I want to know that they are a person of good character, not a predator, but a protector. But another reason I want to conceal is because if somebody is behaving badly and they see that I have a firearm on me, I don't want them trying to take that firearm from me to use it. If they can't see it, or can't get at it easily, then they can't use it to a bad purpose easily, as I reason. That, that's how I think of it. So concealing a weapon is not in and of itself a problem. It's not. 
this again, again, again goes back to what are your intentions with this weapon? Are your intentions to assault some innocent person? If so, then concealing the weapon is beside the point. Your intentions are the problem. But let's go on to the next one. The next one is to make it easier to fire a high volume of ammunition in a short period of time while maintaining accuracy. So what is objected to here? That we would make it easier to fire. Uh, Why would we want the firearm to be hard to fire? Why? It would seem as though that puts a potential victim at greater risk. Because let's suppose this is a dog. The dog doesn't have a firearm. That dog, if the dog's being aggressive, the dog is going to be closing the distance between itself and you very quickly. And you have a limited amount of time to shoot the dog before it potentially has its teeth in you. And then who knows? Who knows what happens? Who knows what damage it can do? But why would we want the firearm to be harder to fire? Uh, The frank answer is we wouldn't. Now, how about a high volume of ammunition? Well, okay, it really is a question of when do you need a high volume of ammunition or when do you want one? Someone who wants to inflict the maximum amount of malicious damage on innocent people, they want a high volume of ammunition so they can hurt and kill as many people as possible. You know, if they're doing suicide by cop, for instance, they're not expecting to get out of this alive. They just want to take as many people with them as they can before they go. Then they might want a high volume of ammunition for causing maximum damage. Sure. But if I'm trying to defend innocent people, then I want a high volume of ammunition so that I can neutralize a threat as quick as possible or as many threats as there are to innocent life as quick as possible. I want to fire a high volume of ammunition in a short period of time if I have a target-rich environment where there are multiple baddies threatening the peace. I want to fire easily a higher volume of ammunition if that's what it takes. I want every shot to go exactly where I intend it to be placed. But at the same time, too, I don't want to have one bullet just in case that one bullet misses or I need more than one bullet because there's more than one target. Also, a short period of time. So they say in a short period of time, they include that in an explanation of what these features allow a shooter to do. A short period of time. The longer the time between when the threat is recognized and when it shows deadly aggression, the longer the time between when it becomes clearly a threat and when you're able to take action to neutralize the threat, the more likely it is that you are going to be the one who's not going home or some other innocent person or multiple other innocent people are going to be harmed or killed. So yes, you want to not react so quickly that it's impulsively when you could de-escalate the situation, sure. But once it's become clear that this person is committed to deadly harm being inflicted on an innocent person, once it's become clear that this animal is a savage beast intent on killing its victim or its prey, the object of its wrath, you want a short period of time. You don't want a long period of time because the more time that goes on, the more damage is going to be done in the meantime, the more risk there is 
to innocent life. Now, the last piece here, maintaining accuracy. Maintaining accuracy is important. It is critically important to gun safety. In fact, it's one of the laws of gun safety that you are controlling where your rounds go. You're not pointing the muzzle of the gun. You're not pointing the barrel of the gun at anything that you wouldn't destroy. You keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to fire. You always treat every gun as if it's loaded. You don't point that barrel at anything you wouldn't destroy. And gun control in that sense, which conservatives are absolutely for all day long, every day, actually can't see some comment in passing about maintaining accuracy as a valid criticism. We can't. We can't accept that as a valid criticism because what's the alternative? You have an inaccurate gun, which you're trying to shoot at, uh, let's say, uh, a rabid dog, and your bullet misses. And because the libs had their way, because the leftists had their way, you don't get many bullets. And let's say they all miss because it's not an accurate firearm and you're not able to control it well when you're wielding it, when you're using it. Well, that defeats the whole purpose. That defeats the whole purpose of owning the firearm in the first place to defend innocent life. Versus a dog is charging one of my children and before it can close that distance, I'm able to shoulder my firearm and shoot the dog with one shot that takes it out before it even gets to my child. Once it's actually closed the distance, do I want to be shooting at the dog while the dog and my child are right there next to each other? If I am going to do that, can I afford to have any doubts as to where the bullets are going to land based on where I was aiming, relative where I was aiming? Can I afford to take that into a risky guess kind of a scenario because I wasn't allowed to have accurate firearms that are easy to maintain a grip on and control. Now, this whole paragraph, paragraph G here, is absurd. It really is. Uh, You might as well just throw in that the, the firearms are black. Assault weapons are typically black. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to the question of whether these are assault weapons or whether these are defense weapons or whether these are just weapons. And it really comes down to your intentions for owning them, whether they're the one thing or they're the other thing. Also, can I just say that saying assault weapons are uniquely lethal due to tactical features that are designed for the battlefield, in order to injure or kill large numbers of people quickly and efficiently, uh, this is very manipulative, disingenuous, or else exceedingly foolish to claim. Uh, So for one thing, uniquely lethal. No, they're not uniquely lethal. No, no. Now, they might be especially lethal. They might be more lethal in some ways. But then again, whether they are assault weapons because they're more lethal, uh, that's debatable. In fact, (laughs) you're going to lose that debate if you argue the other side of it. Because I'll just say, I want, when I'm looking for a weapon to use with deadly force to protect innocent life, I want it to be as deadly as possible. I'm not looking for a taser here. I'm not looking for, uh, you know, beanbag rounds to fire from a shotgun. I'm looking for not a slingshot. 
if I'm looking for a deadly weapon, I want it to be deadly. And I want it to be as effectively deadly as it possibly can be. And now also, too, can I just point out that the very fact of tens of millions of these being owned, these being in common use across the U.S., and in the very small minority of cases being used to kill anybody at all, should call into question in our minds whether these are designed to injure or kill large numbers of people quickly and efficiently. That should call into question the premise. Why do tens of millions of these firearms exist in people's homes and in their businesses and in their vehicles and on their persons and yet not end up on a battlefield or else not injure or kill large numbers of people quickly and efficiently? Let me just be very clear. None of my firearms, so far as I know, have ever killed anybody. Now, I've harvested several deer, but I've never killed anybody. My firearms have never killed anybody, so far as I know. I bought them almost all brand new. There's one exception being a 22 rifle that belonged to my grandfather mullet before he passed away. And before that, the rifle belonged to his brother, Tim. But that's a 22, And I really don't think that was used to kill anybody either. But to say these are designed for the battlefield is to suggest that their only place is the battlefield. Tens of millions of gun owners in the U.S. would beg to differ. I don't have mine on a battlefield. I have mine in my home. Now, if America ever became a battlefield again, if my neighborhood became a battlefield, then I would want these over and against some little single shot muzzle loader. Yeah, you betcha. And oh, by the way, we're not sending muzzle loaders over to Ukraine. So there's that. But here's the thing in order to injure or kill large numbers of people quickly and efficiently, that's what they're designed for, this says. If you're in a battle, sure. If you're protecting your home from potentially multiple intruders, multiple aggressors, then Again, let's go back to my scenario where four grown men break into my home. Is that a large number of people? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that's a large number of people, but it's plenty if it's just me defending my family. If they break into my home and I'm either going to neutralize them or they're going to harm my wife and my children and me, then yes, I do want to be able to kill them quickly and efficiently. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And that doesn't make my firearms assault weapons. That makes my firearms defense weapons. And the more efficiently they can help me to defend my family and my household and my person and my property, the better. And the left hates that. The left hates that because the left is peopled by communists who long ago decided that there is such a thing as surplus population. I read the communist manifesto here this year. A few months ago, Marx and Engels talk again and again and again about surplus population. And what that means is people that just don't need to be here. And by be here, I mean live. And look at the death toll of communism in the 20th century. What Hitler did and the Nazis did does not stack up. It does not matter up to what communists did in the Soviet Union and in China and in other places. And the left wants to do 
the communist thing here in the U.S. And part of what prevents them is conservatives. What prevents them is when a conservative with a firearm is able to protect their person and their property and other innocent people and their property from raping, beating, arson, bombing. And that's really brass tacks. That is when the rubber meets the road, what this really boils down to in terms of the left-right divide on firearms ownership in this country. They are pro-criminal. They are pro-crime. They claim that they are trying to keep firearms out of the hands of criminals. In actual fact, they want to keep the firearms out of the hands of conservatives. And they regard the, the real true crime as being to be a conservative in this country and to do well and to oppose communism. That's what it is. Now, there's also a claim here, and again, can I just say, this is poorly written. The design features and purpose of an assault weapon make it the firearm of choice for mass shooters. You, you can play games with language if you want to here, but what you're really trying to say is every firearm that mass shooters use is therefore an assault weapon, as though being put to a bad purpose, therefore, means that nobody can own this thing for a good purpose. But in that case, what excludes any other thing that can be used to a bad purpose? There have been people who have driven their motor vehicles into parades, for instance, parades of people, crowds of people running them over. We don't therefore call them assault vehicles just because they can be used to run a whole bunch of innocent people over. Neither should we call firearms that have been used in mass shootings assault weapons just because they've been used in some cases in mass shootings. These things do not go together. These things are not logical and they're not honest and they're not above board. As I said, I'll put a link to this draft legislation. It is likely to pass because the Dems have the votes in Colorado. It seems likely to be signed by Governor Jared Polis. It will have to be challenged at the Supreme Court. When it's challenged at the Supreme Court, it has to be struck down because it is unconstitutional. This is an unconstitutional attempt at disenfranchising Americans with regards to their Second Amendment rights. God-given rights, by the way. And I will defend that claim. Going back to the Tennessee business, Ryan Saavedra reported here, March 28th, trans group issues controversial statement after trans killer targets Christian school. A far-left transgender organization faced backlash on Tuesday after releasing a highly controversial statement over Monday's tragic shooting in Nashville in which a transgender person killed six people, including three young children, at a Christian school. The Trans Resistance Network, TRN, said that they expressed their deepest sympathies and heartfelt prayers to the families of those impacted by the shooting. The group then claimed that the killer felt they had no other effective way to be seen than to lash out by taking the life of others and by consequences themselves. Later in the statement, the group said, hate has consequences. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Hate has consequences. What that means is that the left can rationalize very easily killing you and your family and your friends if you oppose the multifaceted agenda of the left. They can justify it in their own minds. And they do, and they will. You get what's coming to you as they see it because 
you disagreed with them. You told them that they were wrong. You argued against their position. You made them feel bad. You made them angry. So this is actually your fault, mister. And this is why I maintain I will keep my firearms. Thank you very much. Alex Nitzberg, April 4th, 2023, writing for The Blaze. Transgender Republican Caitlyn Jenner announces PAC to combat radical gender ideology. I'm not going to read this. I'll link to it in the description for the podcast episode. But let's just comment briefly at the folly, the folly of Caitlyn Jenner offering to help combat radical gender ideology. Start with repenting of saying that you're a woman. You're not a woman. You're a man. You're not a man trapped in a woman's body. You're just a man who is being a pervert and ungodly. And there can be grace for you in Christ Jesus, but you are not going to be able to combat radical gender ideology when you're lying about who you are. And nobody should buy into this. Nobody should follow this. Nobody should endorse it. Nobody should get behind it until Bruce Jenner gives up on dressing like a woman, putting on makeup like a woman, until Bruce Jenner gives up on all of that. He's not part of the solution here. He's part of the problem. DOJ memos dissuaded marshals from arresting protesters at SCOTUS Justice's homes. Senator Katie Britt. Here's some reporting from Joseph Lord. March 29th, 2023. I want you to think about this when you see the left pushing for gun control. Supreme Court justices of the United States of America had violent threats of deadly violence made against them and their families. They had protesters showing up at their home over the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade last summer. This Department of Justice, run by Merrick Garland, ultimately headed up by President Joe Biden, this Department of Justice distributed memos to federal marshals, to U.S. marshals, discouraging them from arresting the protesters. Even though protesters picketing the homes of the Supreme Court justices were thereby breaking the law. When that is the situation and the radical left wants to threaten and has and is threatening Supreme Court justices and their families for upholding the law, the rebels are not the conservatives. The lawbreakers, the lawless ones, the revolutionaries are not the conservatives. We're the ones who are saying, no, we need to submit to the governing authority, in this case, the U.S. Constitution, in this case, certainly not the radical left, which wants us to obey only them and to disobey every law of God and man that wasn't their idea. When the radical left can threaten violence on Supreme Court justices and their families, and the radical left in our own government, thanks to the Democratic Party and contributions from men like George Soros, will interfere with and obstruct law enforcement. You don't want to be dependent on Democrats for the protection and safety of your family or your friends or your place of business or your school or your church or your synagogue or anywhere else, really. You don't want to be dependent on the left for whether violent rioters, looters, protesters even, so-called mostly peaceful but fiery, are going to be prevented from harming you. If the DOJ interfered with the protection of Supreme Court justices, 
but went after pro-life activists raiding their homes in the pre-dawn, dragging them out of their homes when they were trying to provide accountability for our government to the laws of God with regards to the protection of the innocent. No, no, thank you. I will not trust that the Democrats are going to come and protect me and my family. If some angry leftist decides they've had it with me podcasting and blogging and writing and believing what I believe and having these kids and working in the oil and gas industry. No, I do not trust that Joe Biden's Department of Justice or Democrats in the state of Colorado are going to protect me and mine. In fact, I think they would just sit back and see what happens, see how that plays out. Dave Urbanski over at theblaze.com reported March 28th. And again, I know this is a couple of weeks ago, but still, we're talking about gun control now. So I've been saving these links. And here you go. NBC News contributor appears to suggest in now deleted tweet that Daily Wire to blame for mass murder at Nashville Church School. So that is to say, he tweeted out, the shooter was, quote, transgender and had no previous criminal record, end quote. And added in the following sentence that, quote, Nashville is home to the Daily Wire, a hub of anti-trans activity, end quote, while naming Daily Wire commentators Matt Walsh, Ben Shapiro, and Michael Knowles, the paper said. Ryan, according to the New York Post, implied in his tweet that the shooter, quote, was motivated to carry out the mass shooting, end quote, since Nashville is also where the Daily Wire is headquartered. And what this really means, right, what this means is that the left, again, will find a way to actually make this your fault. It's your fault that the radical leftist, the radical transgendered person who is angry, lashed out and murdered children and innocent men and women. It's actually your fault because you didn't give the radical left what they wanted. You told them they were wrong. You disagreed with them. You made them angry. So it's kind of your fault, actually. You have what's coming to you, in other words. And that's your media, right? That's your corporate media. That's your NBC News commentator. Opinion from the Daily Wire. Don't let Biden's all-time offensive response to the Nashville shooting get buried. The lapdog media, so this reads, will never give it the attention it deserves, but don't let President Joe Biden's all-time offensive response to the Covenant school shooting get buried amidst all the news. During his first public appearance on Monday, and this is you know, obviously a little dated, this was the week after the school shooting, by the way. During his first public appearance on Monday, news stations tuned into what they thought was going to be the commander-in-chief addressing the nation, commemorating the lives lost. Instead, for more than two minutes, the president rambled on about ice cream, his wife, good-looking kids, and his sister before getting to his remarks about the Nashville tragedy. ABC News aired the remarks in full, showing the distasteful and tone-deaf comments at the beginning. I'm going to go ahead and play the clip, and you can hear for yourself. Don't take it from me. Here's cut one. Take a listen. My name is Joe Biden. I'm Dr. Joe Biden's husband. And I ate Jenny's ice cream, chocolate chip. I came down because I heard there was chocolate chip ice cream. By the way, I have a whole refrigerator full upstairs. You think I'm kidding? I'm not. God. Ben, how are you, pal? One of the best guys in the United States Congress, Ben Cardin. Yeah. 
Folks, uh, welcome to the White House. It's a delight to have you all here. And who are those good-looking kids back there? They're your kids, all four of them? Well, stand up, guys. All I want you to know, like you, I had two brothers, three in our family, three brothers, and one sister. And my sister is smarter than all of us. Not a joke. She, she used to be three years younger than me. Now she's 23 years younger than me. Yeah. She managed every one of my campaigns for office, even back when I was in high school. We went to the same university two years apart. She graduated honors. I graduated. And we had a simple rule in the family. Listen to Val. My sister Valerie is incredible. So, guys, be nice to your sister. You're going to need her. You're going to need her. I promise. It's the same lineup. You're the oldest. Who's number two? Number two? Who's number three? You're twins? Are you guys twins? Okay. All right. This is this how it was in our outfit. Well, I'm so glad to see you all. Thanks for coming with Mom, okay? You got to take care of your mom. Dads are much harder to raise, but, you know. Now, what he says next, what he says next is not included in that clip. You can read the full remarks in the link I'll provide in this episode description. But he says, before I begin to speak, and the reason I spent a little time on the kids, I just want to speak very briefly about the school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. And so he gets into talking about the school shooting. And what does he do, right? What does he do when he talks about the school shooting? According to the transcript from whitehouse.gov, he says, you know, Ben and I have been doing this our whole careers, it seems. And it's just, it's sick. You know, we're all still gathering the facts of what happened and why. And we do know that as of now, there are a number of people who are not going to, did not make it, including children. And it's heartbreaking, a family's worst nightmare. And I want to commend the police who repo uh, responded incredibly swiftly within minutes to end the danger. We're monitoring the situation really closely. Ben, as you know, and we have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart, ripping the soul of this nation, ripping at the very soul of this nation. And we uh, we have to do more to protect our schools so they aren't turned into prisons. You know, the shooter in this situation reportedly had two assault weapons and a pistol, two AK-47. So I call on Congress again to pass my assault weapons ban. It's about time that we begin to make some more progress, but there's more to learn. But I just want to send my concern and hearts out to so many parents out there. I've been to so many of these sites, as Ben knows by virtually everyone. And one of the things you folks should, I know you do know, but you should focus on, you know, just like when in the military, when my son was in Iraq for a year, other places, you know, there's so many members of the military coming back with post-traumatic stress after witnessing the violence and participating in it. Well, these children, these teachers, they should be they should be focusing on their mental health as well. And I'm so grateful. Anyway, sorry to start off that way, but I couldn't begin without acknowledging what happened. And now I'm grateful that all of you are joining us here today. And, and then he goes into the regular event as scheduled and as planned. And here's the thing of it, right? There's zero responsibility taken for how the left has encouraged and incentivized and promoted transgender ideology. There's zero responsibility taken they talk about promoting mental health. They're promoting mental illness. They're normalizing mental illness. They talk about 
pre- preventing uh, school shootings, but then they fill the schools with an ideology that's godless and immoral. They teach the kids that there is no God, and if there is a God, you don't have to fear him. You don't have to obey him. You don't have to trust him. You don't have to know what he said or that that is authoritative in your life. You don't have to worship him as the creator forevermore. They teach these kids in these schools to be obedient to the state first and foremost, before your mom and your dad, before God himself, obey the state. And then when guns are involved, you blame the guns. But don't talk about the fact that this person was encouraged in their delusion and taught by the radical left to regard Christians as their enemy, to regard even Christian children as their enemy. If Christian children are their natural enemy, then what are they going to do? These transgendered people, what are they going to do when you've told them that this is an existential threat, that they're having genocide committed against them? It's not genocide to say you are a man because you were born male and now you're an adult, to say you are a woman because you were born female and now you're an adult. It's not genocide to say this is reality. In fact, that's what the schools should be primarily concerned with teaching. Otherwise, what are they teaching kids these days? As the professor asks in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What are they teaching? Well, they're teaching in American public schools to obey the state and to view progress as whatever the radical left says it is. And this is why we homeschool, by the way. Speaking of Tennessee, Zach Jewell reports April 11th, 2023 for The Daily Wire. Governor Bill Lee calls on legislature to pass red flag law, signs exec order, strengthening gun background checks. Governor Bill Lee is a Republican and he is asking how high when the left tells him to jump. Because the left has settled on the narrative that this is the fault of the Daily Wire and this is the fault of Tennessee for banning mutilation of children's bodies to go along with this transgender ideology, transgenderism, radical gender theory, because they have decided that that's their narrative, that's their story, and they're sticking to it. If Republicans are not clear on what's actually going on here spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, socially, then yeah, conservatives are not going to be able to hold their position because they don't even know what their position is, really. If conservatives think that their first duty is to get reelected, then what's the point of having conservatives? What are they conserving? They're conserving their political power? What political power? The left knows what it's about. It has a totalitarian vision, which will brook no resistance, which will accept no disagreement or criticism. And this is precisely why Republicans need to be reacquainted with what God's word says. Conservatives need to be bringing their constituents back to the truth of God's word, the authority of God's word as the foundation for why we are conservatives. Otherwise, what are we conserving? Just the status quo? What's the game plan? When you give the left what they want, when a transgendered person shoots up a Christian school, when you give the left what they want, you're going to get more radical leftists shooting up Christian schools and churches 
if that's all it takes is the radical left to engage in criminal behavior, to be lawless and chaotic and revolutionary, you give them what they want, you will get more revolutionary behavior from them. You will get more lawless behavior from them. But in that case, you're really not Republicans. You're not actually for the rule of law. And yet the reason for that might be because you don't understand the roots of believing in the rule of law because you don't understand where the law comes from ultimately. You don't understand that the law ultimately the law ultimately has to come from God in order to be authoritative over all of us. Progressives and liberals and people who think they're conservative just because they're uncomfortable with what the radical left is demanding, those people if they don't understand the nature of the authority that God is speaking in when he says do this and don't do that, then they also really can't in the long run, win. They really can't. But if you understand that the historical roots of political conservatism are found in wicked kings of England and Scotland saying, I am the law. If you understand that, and you understand that the response from Scots Presbyterians, nonconformists in the UK was to say, no, 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 you're not the law, king, the law is king because the law comes from God and God is the ultimate lawgiver. And you yourself have to be subject to the laws. You can't just say that the law is whatever you want it to be. When that's the origin, then it doesn't matter whether we're talking about a king or we're talking about a king maker like a George Soros. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about a president or we're talking about a angry mob or a transgendered person or somebody who gets up in a public venue during a speaking event and wants to make the speaker squirm. So they ask a gotcha question, which equates to, I say jump, you say how high. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about one man saying, I am the law, or we're talking about the whole people saying, we are the law because we are 51%. Or we're the most emotional about this. We're the most upset about this. We're the angriest about this. We're the most committed to getting our way. Either way, it's the same. It doesn't matter whether it's one or many. The law ultimately doesn't come from just whatever we want, whatever we like, whatever we aspire to. The law ultimately has to come from God in order to be authoritative. And Romans 13 speaks to this, saying that the governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil, and does not bear the sword for nothing. We have to ask God what is good. We have to ask God what is evil in order for the governing authority to do its job. And we have to call the governing authority to repent when the governing authority neglects or else abuses the proper exercise of his authority, God-given. Alex Nitzberg over at The Blaze, March 28th, 2023. DHS secretary says he would support an assault weapons ban then fails to deliver a definition of assault weapon. Here's an important back and forth. I'll play the clip of the audio. This from Forbes Breaking News on YouTube. You can hear the exchange between Mayorkas, Department of Homeland Security, and Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. Here is cut two. Take a listen. Chairman, welcome, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Secretary, do you agree with the president that we should ban the private ownership 
of assault weapons in America? Senator, I do. What is an assault weapon? It is, for example, an AK-47. Uh, can you give me a definition other than just pointing to a specific weapon? Would there be other weapons besides an AK-47 you would ban? Uh, there uh, uh, very well are. And I remember when I was a federal prosecutor uh, in the Central District of California from September 25th, 1989 to, I believe it was April 2001. And I thank you for uh, your service, the, but if you could answer law my question. The, the vast majority of law enforcement officers, uh, leaders uh, with whom I worked uh, uh, were uh, greatly in support of the assault weapons Mr. ban. Mr. Chairman, you know why we get so frustrated with you? Because you won't give straight answers. I think I just did. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Do you have an, a, def, a definition of an assault weapon? Uh, I am confident there is a technical definition of what is an assault weapon, uh, and it was uh, assuredly used uh, in the context of the statute that previously existed banning assault weapons. And cut. According to Wikipedia, if you check out the article for Federal Assault Weapons Ban, scroll down to Definition of Assault Weapon to read the following. Under the Assault Weapons Ban of 1994, the definition of Semi-Automatic Assault Weapon, S-A-W, commonly shortened to Assault Weapon, included specific semi-automatic firearm models by name and other semi-automatic firearms that possessed two or more from a certain set of features. Semi-automatic rifles able to accept detachable magazines and has two or more of the following. Folding or telescoping stock, pistol grip, bayonet mount, flash hider or threaded barrel designed to accommodate one, grenade launcher, semi-automatic pistols with detachable magazines, and two or more of the following. Magazine that attaches outside the pistol grip, threaded barrel to attach barrel extender, flash suppressor, hand grip, or suppressor, barrel shroud safety feature that prevents burns to the operator, a manufactured weight of 50 ounces or more when the pistol is unloaded, a semi-automatic version of a fully automatic firearm, semi-automatic shotguns with two or more of the following, folding or telescoping stock, pistol grip, a fixed magazine capacity in excess of five rounds, detachable magazine, the law also categorically banned the following makes and models of semi-automatic firearms and any copies or duplicates of them in any caliber. Narinko, Mitchell, and Poly Technologies, Automatic, Kalishnikovs, AKs, all models. Action Arms, Israeli Military Industries, Uzi, and Galil. Beretta, AR-70, SC-70. Colt, AR-15. Fabrique Nationale. FN-FAL, FN-LAR, FNC, SWD, MAC-type, M10, M11, M11-9, M12, STAIR-AUG, Intertech, Tech-9, Tech-DC-9, Tech-22, revolving cylinder shotguns such as or similar to the Street Sweeper and Striker-12. Be it known that prior to this, prior to this, 1994 assault weapons ban. AR-15s were legal. MAC-type were legal. Intertech were legal. Revolving cylinder shotguns were legal. Continuing on with Wikipedia. 
Gun control advocates and gun rights advocates have referred to at least some of the features outlined in the Federal Assault Weapons Ban of 1994 as cosmetic. The NRA Institute for Legislative Action and the Violence Policy Center both used the term in publications that were released by them in September 2004 when the ban expired. In May 2012, the Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence said that, quote, the inclusion in the list of features that were purely cosmetic in nature created a loophole that allowed manufacturers to successfully circumvent the law by making minor modifications to the weapons they already produced. The term was repeated in several stories after the 2012 Aurora, Colorado shooting and the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Senator Marco Rubio cited that issue during a town hall forum responding to questions from survivors of the 2018 Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida. So here's what the issue was. This ban on firearms was supposed to make America safer, right? What's curious is if I check out a graph, gun deaths per 100,000 people age adjusted by type from this February 3rd, 2022 write-up by John Gramlich, what the data says about gun deaths in the U.S., Pew Research Center. I notice we had something of a peak in, it looks like 1974, 7.2 murders by gun per 100,000 people. We see another spike between 1990 and 1994. We see the numbers drop off. And when this so-called assault weapons ban expired in 2004, what's interesting is we didn't see some huge uptick. And what I mean by that is if the gun control advocates were right, that banning so-called assault weapons made everybody safer. Okay, maybe you see some of that, maybe, possibly. Although just seeing the number go down or go up, based on consideration of gun control legislation is misleading. But but if that were valid, right? Murder rates involving firearms went down after the so-called assault weapons ban in 1994. Once the ban expired and was not renewed in 2004, you would expect to see a huge uptick. And instead, what you see is a small increase in gun deaths, gun homicides, and then a drop to an even lower rate. 2008, 2012, 2013, 14, and then 2016. Something happens. <clears throat> what happened? What happened in 2016 to 2020? 2020, we've seen a huge uptick. Now we're back up to 6.2 per 100,000 compared with 7.2 in, it looks like, again, 1974. So what happened? What happened in 2016 or thereabouts? Black Lives Matter riots, Antifa riots, hmm. COVID lockdowns, 2020, rioting, looting, domestic violence increases, pushes to defund the police in major American cities. Hmm. Curious. And yet, what will Democrats point to as proof that they need to reinstate a gun control ban? They won't point to what they've been doing with regards to mental health, encouraging mental illness, 
and immorality, they won't point to what they've been doing with calls to defund the police. They won't push to the fore of our thinking that they were encouraging Black Lives Matter riots, Antifa declaring autonomous zones in major American cities. No, what they want you to think is murder rates by gun are going up and up because of Republicans, because of conservatives, because of these Christians. That's what you're supposed to be thinking. That's what conclusion you're supposed to draw. You're supposed to be thinking that if you let them enact gun control, then America will be a safer place. If you let them ban assault weapons, even though Alejandro Mayorkas doesn't even know, he, he's for it, right? he's for an assault weapons ban, but he doesn't even know what is an assault weapons ban going to actually ban. He can't provide a definition. He can say, well, you know, for example, the AK-47, right, which we associate with communists and terrorists. And so that's an easy one, right? Yeah, of course, only terrorists and communists want AK-47s, although the left would probably be okay with the AK-47 if only communists had it. But nevertheless, I look at the Wikipedia write-up, and it looks very similar to what the state of Colorado is trying to enact what Democrats, I should say, in the state of Colorado are trying to enact. And this is not going to make us safer. It's going to make us less safe. And oh, by the way, another thing that the left likes to do to decrease crime rates is they just normalize criminal activity. So change your classification for shoplifting, for instance. Raise the minimum amount that something has to be worth and stolen from a store from $250 to $1,000, and voila, the crime rate goes way down. See? Isn't that nice? Also, yeah, maybe you don't have as many murders by gun if you ban law-abiding citizens from owning firearms, and it's only the criminals who are allowed to own firearms that are effective because they just threaten to use them on most people, and most people comply and give them whatever they want. But other kinds of crime, what happens to other kinds of crime as the criminals who are already breaking laws anyways decide just to break one more and use whatever firearm they very well please to commit their crimes and threaten their victims? Shoot them if they have to, but you know, not if they get what they want. You know, What's curious is you take rape statistics, for instance. Forcible rape statistics, according to Statista.com, per 100,000 – Starting in 1990, with numbers all the way up to 2021, we had a peak in 1992, 42.8. 42.8 per 100,000. We see a decrease year over year, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, all the way until 2001, when the rate dropped to 31.8. Then we get a slight rise in 2002, 33.1, and then it kept on dropping down and down and down until 2011, when it reached its lowest point over the last 30 years, 27 per 100,000. That's still way too many, but much lower than 42.8 in 1992. Something happened 2013, a huge spike from 27 to 35.9, then 37 the next year, 2015, we had 39.3. 16, 40.9, 17, 41.7, 18, 
44 per 100,000. That's more than in 92. A slight drop to 43.6. Another drop to 42.3 in 2020. And then another uptick in 2021 to 43.5. So, these are just reported, but still, still, that's 40 out of 100,000 people year over year report, mostly women, I'm sure, report being raped, forcibly raped in the U.S. Now, it's interesting as well, do note, the FBI revised the definition of rape in 2013. According to Statista, the previous definition, which specified carnal knowledge of a female victim forcibly and against her will, Attempted rape was included in the previous definition, but statutory rape and other sexual offenses were excluded. The old definition was seen as problematic as people of any gender can be raped. Since the revision of the definition of rape, reported rapes increased by about 20%, although it's not clear if this is due to the revised definition or if the rate itself has increased. Now, if I check out another graph from Statista, this one for total violent crime reported in the U.S. from 1990 to 2021, I see the peak in 1992, 1.9 million reported violent crimes in the U.S. 93, still 1.9 million. 94, we start to see a drop, 1.85 million. 95, 1.8 million. 96, 1.68 million. 97, 1.63. 98, 1.53. Down and down it goes, leveling off about 2,000. 2001, we see a small uptick before dropping again in 2002 to 1.4, 1.38 in 2003, 1.36, 1.39, 1.435, 1.42. The lowest it's gotten in the last 30 years was 2014 at 1.15 million violent crimes reported. I just reported ones. Okay. 2016, we saw an increase from... 1.19 million to 1.28 million. In 2020, we saw it increase to 1.3 million, which is to say that there are over a million. At most, we saw nearly 2 million violent crimes committed in the U.S. in the early 90s, but we're seeing it tick up again. And this is total, right? This is total number of violent crimes. When conducting crime reporting, the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program considered murder, non-negligent manslaughter, forcible rape, robbery, and aggravated assault to be violent crimes because they are offenses which involve force or threat of violence. Now, according to Statista, the most used murder weapon in 2020 was the handgun, which was used in 8,029 murders that year. According to the FBI, firearms of all types were used in more than half of the nation's murders The total number of firearms manufactured in the U.S. in 2017 reached 9 million units. And what's the point of talking about that when we're also talking about gun control? Well, a couple of things. One, handguns are the most used murder weapon in 2020. Handguns were the most used murder weapon. Not AR-15s. Not AK-47s. Handguns. If... The left is allowed to ban common-use firearms like the AR-15 and the AK-47. I have friends and family who own AK-47s for sport shooting, for home defense. They're okay. Not my favorite. I prefer the AR-15. I have a few. But 
if you let the Democrats ban AR-15s and AK-47s and anything that's got a pistol brace or a forward brace or collapsible stock or detachable magazine, they won't be happy to stop with those things. They will also try to ban handguns generally because then they'll say, well, actually, look at the stats. Handguns are used in most murders. More than half of the nation's murders involve firearms as the weapon. What does that also mean, though? What it means is there's a whole lot of murders that happen in the U.S. that don't involve firearms. What happens to those statistics if the dynamics influencing the uptick in crime, in violent crime, in 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, if what is driving violent crime upwards, primarily leftist activism, Soros-backed DAs in big cities, if that remains unchanged and, in fact, gets worse. If the, epi- if the economic conditions get worse because we're headed into a recession, according to the Federal Reserve later this year, we're expected to have a recession. I think we're already in it. If, if you can see it coming, you're already in it, right? But what happens to the violent crime stats? And for that matter, too, how many crimes are committed, how many evils happen without even the threat of violence if the expectation is that more potential victims don't have any means of defending themselves? How many more just don't go reported or they're not prosecuted or they're not investigated because good cops are resigning? What's the point? What's the point of catch and release? These are important things we have to consider. We really do. And besides all that, again, I go back to the law in Leviticus, for instance, not just waiting and seeing, hey, what'll happen if somebody sins? Well, we don't know. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Now, when you sin, yeah, there will be sin. When you sin, here's how that needs to be dealt with. It's not a question of whether there are going to be criminals engaging in criminal activity. It's a question of what will the response be? Will potential victims be able to defend themselves? Yes or no? Also, what does our constitution say? Also, can you trust the Democrats? Can you trust the left to be protecting you when they sent out memos to not arrest protesters outside the homes of Supreme Court justices? In a nakedly partisan political move, let's let them feel the pressure. Let's let them feel the heat and sweat on the potential that they or their loved ones could be harmed here. Let them feel that, and then we'll see what they decide the next case that comes to their schedule. We got to think about these things. We really do. We have to think about them. We have to know why these are important issues to our well-being, to our security. We have to know why these things are pushed for, what the effect is going to be. We have to understand that the people who are pushing for gun control, they don't know nearly so much about guns as they do about their desire to control And we have to understand what's driving the criminality in the first place. If we don't get that, if we think that it's all just poverty, but we don't understand the connection to what we believe about God, then we're going to get more of the same. We're going to get more crime. We're going to get more lawlessness. By contrast, consider Psalm 144, and I'll leave you with this. A Psalm of David, my rock and my fortress. Blessed be Yahweh, my rock 
who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Yahweh, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Yahweh, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars, cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is Yahweh. Amen. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.